Hello and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. My name is Eli. And I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the 1985 film A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. The big one is discussion of periotypical homophobia throughout the episode, including discussion of the AIDS epidemic and conversion therapy. The episode also contains discussion of misogyny within the slasher genre, a brief mention of a sadomasochistic act, and a brief mention of animal death in film. If any of that sounds like something that you would not like to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and listen to any of our other episodes instead. Okay, so let's talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. So as I said, this movie came out in 1985, which is technically just after the golden age of the slasher film, which stretched from 1978 to 1984, but it's still very much defined by that particular period in film history. Slasher movies are very often either ignored or maligned by critics, and they have a reputation for being very brainless or shallow pieces of media. But when you do a little bit of digging, it becomes clear that, like Crystal Lake, there's a lot going on beneath the surface of a slasher. (laughs) (laughs) And in this case, there's a lot that's of interest to us as queer historians or media analysts, as the case may be. So if you'll indulge me, we're going to talk about a little bit of horror movie history first. And then move on to talking about the surprising and seemingly unintended ways that this film is subversive and complicated in terms of sexuality and gender. I feel like the public is generally aware of what a slasher is, but I thought that I would start by defining the genre anyway. Um, And it is quite easy to define because it's a very, very formulaic genre. (laughs) So the films center around a killer stalking and slashing a group of hapless victims The killer is almost always male and generally an ordinary person seeking revenge after a traumatic incident, which we often see in the inciting scene of the film. The weapon will be a close range weapon, such as a knife, axe, spear, chainsaw, etc., not something like a gun. And the films are often set on a significant date, such as a holiday or a life cycle event. So you've got Halloween and you also have prom night. Uh, (laughs) And pretty quickly they burnt through all of them and we get some really silly movies around like very obscure holidays. What's the most obscure one you can think of is it like an arbor day horror movie oh surely <laughs> I, mean, I i think it's like really unfortunate that there isn't an australia day slasher movie as far as i'm aware i think that would be pretty ripe for a, a clumsy mishandling of the relevant uh, <laughs> cultural issues but it it never happened probably for the better probably for the better i don't know if we really ever made slashes in this country yeah i mean we've got several of those like uh, outback style yeah sort of like exploitation movies. films and stuff like that but i don't know yeah. if we have like slashes in particular well i think it's like like australia's not really associated with the suburbs which i feel is pretty important to the slasher genre yeah i I guess that you've got like your films that take place in the suburbs and then you've got your films that take place very much like in a sort of terrible place that is far from society as well Mm, so you have like texas chainsaw massacre that takes place you know like in the i was gonna say the outback but that's not what they call it in america in the desert I guess. Um, And even Friday the 13th kind of straddles the two where it's like very much out in the woods, but it's still in this kind of like safe sort of structure of society, which is like a a school camp. Yeah. Um, Other hallmarks of the slasher genre include the use of subjective point of view camera work. And importantly, there will be a final girl who manages to survive until the end of the film and defeat or at least survive the killer. It's hard to give a concrete starting point for the evolution of the slasher. In his history of the genre, which I do not recommend, but I did read, 
Adam Rockoff's search for aesthetic and thematic predecessors takes him back through exploitation films, universal monster movies, German expressionism, Italian giallo films, and eventually he ends up all the way back at the Colosseum of Ancient Rome. That's pretty wild. Yes. (laughs) His takeaway was just people like seeing violence, I think. That's a very original thought. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to try to limit us a little more, but if we have to pick a starting point in the evolution of the slasher formula, then it's going to be Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film Psycho. Several of the elements that were most shocking and influential from Psycho, including its score, its use of violence, and point-of-view camera work, are clearly influential in later slasher films. By the 1970s, we have films that are recognizably slashes, with Black Christmas and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre both being released in 1974. These conform pretty closely to the formula I mentioned before. Certainly they have signature traits of the slasher genre so black christmas has point of view camera work texas chainsaw massacre has uh one of the more iconic final girls i would say if only for the famous final shot of sally in the pickup truck bed i will get you to watch texas chainsaw massacre one day eli has been slowly (laughs) educating me in uh the horror genre not a genre that i have much experience with in my life but i have been enjoying the education Mm -hmm. to be honest what's your favorite horror movie we've watched so far Ooh. I think probably uh, Friday the 13th is my favorite so far. Oh, no. No, The Thing was really good. That was just like, unironically, a really interesting and fun Mm, movie. It is, yeah. It's really good. I'd recommend it. Also, not gay. It's like, shockingly ungay, given it's about like a group of men in an isolated location. Oh, yeah. And there's like so much mustache going on in that movie. I can't even remember how true that is, but like it's spiritually true, if not literally true. (laughs) I feel like there's at least two mustaches. There is certainly (laughs) more than one mustache. Anyway, the film that is cited by some as the first true slasher and the one that started the golden age of slasher films was John Carpenter's 1978 film Halloween. And this is the film which most potently drew the developing norms of the slasher genre into a blueprint, essentially. Halloween was made independently on a budget of $300,000, and it was a huge success, making $70 million at the box office. Unsurprisingly, every studio immediately decided they wanted a piece of that pie, and the golden age of the slasher began, because it was a formula they could use to print money. (laughs) The next six years saw dozens of slashes and the introduction of iconic slasher movie killers such as Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th, although as everyone who's seen Scream knows not until the sequel, and Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street. In the 1980s, filmmaker Wes Craven read a series of articles about young men dying during nightmares and was inspired to write the script for A Nightmare on Elm Street. The film is about four teenagers who are attacked in their dreams and therefore are killed in real life by Freddy Krueger, the spirit of a serial killer wielding a bladed glove obviously. (laughs) He shopped the script around to various production studios and no one was interested except for Newland Cinema. Newland Cinema, then headed by Robert Shea, was a fledgling production company that had made a few films but was mostly profiting off of distributing foreign and cult films, including the anti-marijuana propaganda film Reefer Madness, which was by then a cult hit with college students smoking weed, presumably. (laughs) Fair enough. Shay liked the script and essentially risked his company to make and distribute the film. Luckily for him, the film was a critical and financial success and it put Newland Cinema on the map. The company would come to be known as the house that Freddie built. <laughs> and then like 20 years later, they made Lord of the Rings, didn't they? Yeah, they did actually make <laughs> Lord of the Rings. And I have a fun fact about that, actually, in that Peter Jackson 
was one of several writers who made a pitch for what the sixth Nightmare on Elm Street film should be. Uh, His pitch did not end up getting made, but it did give him an introduction to New Line Cinema, and then he went on to make the best movies of all time. (laughs) So there you go, Freddy Krueger, responsible for Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) Freddy Krueger is the true Lord of the Rings. Bob Shea had acquired the rights to the franchise in making the first one, and there was immediate talk at New Line about creating a sequel. Wes Craven was very unenthused with the direction that the project was taking and was not involved. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was therefore directed by a friend of Shea's, Jack Shoulder, and the script was written by David Chaskin, who worked in New Line's distribution department. The film is set five years after the events of the first film and centers around Jesse Walsh, a teenage boy whose family has just moved into the Elm Street house and who starts to experience terrifying nightmares as Freddy seeks to possess his body. The film was a financial success, but it received mixed reviews, and for many fans, it's their least favourite of the series. To some degree, this is not unfair. The movie was pushed through very quickly without the involvement of Wes Craven. Jack Shoulder, the director, wasn't actually a fan of the original, and both he and Chaskin wanted to do something different with the sequel. So no matter how well they did, there were always going to be people for whom it didn't live up to the original, it just didn't land, and that's fine. That's a matter of personal taste. Jason, you have seen three of these films. Obviously, that's not all of them, but you know, how do you, how do you feel about it? How do you feel it like fits into that? Okay. What so, are your feelings? <laughs> so we watched the first three of these films together. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I didn't really feel like the creators of the second film were actively working against the spirit of the first film. Mm-hmm. It felt very much in keeping, you know, it's it's the same house. Yeah. Um, obviously, like, you've gender flipped the main character which i'm sure is something we're going to talk about a bit Mm -hmm. later on but yeah i I thought it was really good and certainly in comparison to the third movie which was completely bonkers (laughs) and very much did not feel like the first two if you'd shown those three films to me without giving me any context and Mm -hmm. asked me which one was the one that's considered to be an outlier and like you know, not really part of the franchise. My answer would 100% have been the third one. <laughs> this is so funny to me because Dream Warriors is widely considered to be the best of this series. <sighs> like, it's certainly very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we could go off on a whole tangent here about Dream Warriors, which we shouldn't do, but it is <sighs> definitely 50% of a great movie. Anyway. <laughs> um, Dream Warriors! <laughs> I couldn't record this episode without saying that. I'm the wizard master. Anyway. um, In my dreams, I'm beautiful, chink, and bad. We should set a Patreon goal where we will dress as the characters from Dream Warriors if we hit a certain... No one cares about this at all. (laughs) Please uh, go to patreon.com slash queer fact i don't know is that how patreon works (laughs) i don't know if that's how patreon works um yeah anyway i agree i don't think that this is the worst tone of the franchise i feel like it's much closer in tone to the original than like basically anything that comes thereafter um after this freddy becomes this sort of like wisecracking sunglasses wearing cereal box mascot of a character and like to be clear that's not a bad thing necessarily you know freddy krueger has a sort of a very strong personality and 
obviously it it works for people and I don't like dislike the later films, Mm. but it's wild to me that this film is more divisive than some of the later stuff. Like the sixth movie has cameos by Alice Cooper and Roseanne Barr. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the start of four, he is resurrected by a dog urinating fire onto his grave. Just a random dog. There's no explanation. Like this film franchise is so wild, (laughs) but okay. One of Wes Craven's major complaints, which was echoed by fans, was that it sort of broke the rules of the first movie. It allowed Freddy to kill in the real world and not just in dreams, which Craven and obviously a lot of the fans felt was key to like the atmosphere and just the general vibe and scariness of Freddy. Um, And this film certainly is quite confusing when you try to think about what exactly is happening in a dream and what is happening in real life. Mm. Um, And you could kind of argue that that works in a franchise like this, but I I think that it would be generous to think that that's actually always deliberate and not just kind of the result of like Chaskin putting whatever on the page. Yeah. And like a a hurried filmmaking process. Mm. So you're not necessarily getting that kind of, you know, going over the script a few times to make sure that there's like consistency in what it's doing. Yeah. The result of this allowing Freddy to kill in the real world is a scene where Freddy runs around a pool party, um, which even Robert Englund, who is Freddy's actor, noted just didn't feel right. It it didn't allow him to feel sufficiently menacing Mm. anymore. And, like, that is undeniably, I think, a pretty silly scene. Yeah, yeah. There are some really effective death scenes in this movie, and that is not one of them. I think, yeah, I think... Pretty inarguably, that's probably the weak point of the film. Mm. I don't know. There is the bird explosion scene. That's true. A bird does explode. It's undeniable, however, that part of the reason, and I guess probably most of the reason, why people reacted so strongly negatively to this film is because of how queer it was. Which brings us to the point of this podcast. Um, (laughs) So to break this down, I'm going to talk about this film, first of all, in terms of gender and then in terms of how it depicts sexuality. So yeah, let's start with gender and in particular about how this movie plays with the trope of the final girl. So you've already noted that this film has essentially gender flipped the original Discussions of the trope of the final girl owe a lot to Carol Clover, who was a professor in medieval studies as well as film studies, who defined the final girl trope and coined the term in her book Men, Women and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, Um, and in particular in the chapter Her Body Himself. Yeah, I would um, recommend reading Clover's work or like at least that chapter. Um, I think in particular... You know, if you're like interested in and somewhat enjoy slasher films, but have complicated feelings about how it depicts women, I think she's got a lot of good stuff to say about sort of like the nuance and the complicated ways that the genre depicts gender in general. Um, Yeah, yeah. There's a lot that she gets into just in that like one chapter, her body himself, which I originally tried to put in the script and then I was like, oh no, Uh, and I cut out. So I would recommend that you have a look at that. Or if you don't want to wade through what is sometimes quite like dense academic work, the horror podcast Dead Meat actually did an episode on The Final Girl based heavily off of Clover's chapter as well. So they can kind of like strip away the academic jargon and give you a very engaging, accessible look at some of that. We are not sponsored by Dead Meat. We are not sponsored by Dead Meat. (laughs) Because Clover is the one who defined the trope, I am going to read you her words to explain what it is. Mm -hmm. The final girl of the slasher film is presented from the outset as the main character. The practice viewer distinguishes her from her friends minutes into the film. 
She is the Girl Scout, the bookworm, the mechanic. Unlike her friend, she is not sexually active. Above all, she is intelligent and resourceful. She is the one who encounters the mutilated bodies of her friends and perceives the full extent of the preceding horror and her own peril. She alone looks death in the face, but she alone also finds a strength either to stay the killer long enough to be rescued or to kill him herself. A lot of that is probably familiar or at least sounds about right, even to people who don't watch horror movies these days. Like I think that a lot of this, even though Clover was just articulating it when she wrote this in the early 2000s, I think, now has become like basically like a cliche of the genre. You know, everyone knows that if you have sex in a horror movie, you die etc yeah yeah, mm. yeah like that's been made fun of on many comedies and not just like mm-hmm. horror comedies also just like yeah. generally in comedies so in many ways the final girl is very conventionally feminine due to the pre-established cinematic conventions that frame women as passive vulnerable desirable and so on victims in monster movies have typically been women well predating the slasher movie mm. and this is something that horror directors are like very blatantly unapologetic about so horror director daria argento put it i like women especially beautiful ones if they have a good face and figure i would much prefer to watch them being murdered than an ugly girl or man which you know is very upfront yeah yeah uh guess you can't fault the honesty brian de palma similarly said women in peril work better in the suspense genre if you have a haunted house and you have a woman walking around with a candelabrum, you fear more for her than you would for a husky man. In addition, the final girl's gender allows her to express a broader range of emotions than is usually permitted to men on screen. So she's able to cry and cower, scream, beg and faint in ways that men just sort of aren't allowed to in film. Mm-hmm. Male victims in slasher films are generally killed very, very quickly or they're killed off screen. Often they don't even have time to register what is happening to them before they die whereas the camera will linger on female victims and their reactions for much longer they'll generally have time to realize what's about to happen to them and react to it so of course the final victim who reacts to it for the longest amount of time it it makes sense that she's a woman Mm -hmm. however clover notes that the final girl is also quite boyish so if we think about the traits listed above as archetypal of the final girl her resourcefulness often mechanical skill her being sexually chaste it's unsurprising that this results in her being like a somewhat boyish figure compared to other women in the film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. clover also notes that final girls even often have masculine or androgynous names so there's marty in hell knight stretch in chainsaw 2 stevie in the fog etc yeah i mean i feel like there's often that like i'm not like other girls kind of vibe to Mm -hmm. female horror movie protagonists often in a way that shames the sexuality of other women like not necessarily from the point of view of that character but from the point of view of the movie yeah i think that's a, a pretty generally fair assessment of a genre that is widely known for disapproving of teenage sexual antics yeah Yeah. (laughs) whilst simultaneously profiting off of it yes the final girl also doesn't oscillate randomly between being framed as as feminine and being framed as masculine but instead will sort of move from femininity to masculinity as the film progresses so early on we'll often see her framed through the killer's eyes through his point of view and she'll be passive both in terms of this gaze and the fact that the killer is the one who's moving the plot But as it moves along, she transitions from the victim to the hero and shots are framed so as to make the audience identify with her gaze instead. The killer will often be revealed midway through the film from her point of view and she becomes an active player in moving and then in concluding the plot. 
Interestingly, as the golden age of the slasher film continued, the final girls became more active and ferocious in their self-defense and increasingly moved away from just managing to survive long enough to be rescued by someone, often a man, and increasingly they kill the killer themselves. So we can compare Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 with the original to sort of illustrate this point quite nicely. In the first one, as I mentioned before, Sally escapes through the aid of a truck driver and then by climbing into the bed of a pickup truck and Leatherface is left dancing with the chainsaw behind her. It's so great. (laughs) (laughs) But in the second one, the final girl stretch kills her final pursuer herself and waves her own chainsaw in a similar fashion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if we return to a nightmare on Elm street, Nancy Thompson, who is the final girl in the first film is a pretty typical example of the trope. She is introduced in the script as quote, a pretty girl in a leather sweater with an easy athletic stride and the look of a natural leader. And is actually, in Clover's opinion, the grittiest final girl. She is aware that the killer is coming for her in advance and she sets up a series of, like, home alone traps for him. She really does. It's Um, really good. (laughs) Obviously that scene wouldn't have carried home alone connotations at the time of release because home alone had not been released but it was surprising to me how effective it nonetheless was even as someone who grew up watching the home alone films Mm. it didn't take me out of the movie at all Mm. and make me think of it as a comedy and then in the sequel we have jesse walsh as the main character and hopefully all of this stuff that i've just waffled on about makes it clear that in part this is subversive simply just because he's a boy fulfilling a trope that expects a girl. Mm-hmm. So Robert Englund talks about the casting of Mark Patton, the actor who plays Jesse, and he says, we had a real sensitive male lead. Instead of a typical macho teen boy, we had sort of this sort of this nerdy sensitive kid, and he became the equivalent of our heroine in Jeopardy in part one. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier the final girls often having masculine names. Mm. Interesting to note that Jessie then has a somewhat feminine name. Yeah, and indeed just as like final girls are somewhat masculinized by the role they have to occupy in the film, Jessie as a final boy is somewhat feminized by occupying this trope. Mm. So just like a final girl, he starts the movie in this position of victimhood and he's shot in a lot of ways that highlight his vulnerability. So he's often shot in like seemingly endless shots of him, like in bed, barely dressed, sweating. Mm. He definitely is like quite vulnerable at Mm. various points throughout the movie. Yeah. And he also emotes much more than men generally do in slasher films or like in films at all. Particularly notable example of this is his scream, which is a typical feature of a final girl, Mm. but it's something that made people like really deeply uncomfortable and something that a lot of people mock in particular about this film. Mm. Mm. And like, there's nothing wrong with it. It's like a good piece of acting. He has like a good scream. Mm. It's just not something that people expect from a male actor. And it's not something that people expect from the genre. For like a man in the genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. Furthermore, unlike Nancy or unlike most final girls, he never completes his arc and becomes the hero at the end of the film. Instead, at the end of the film, he becomes fully possessed by Freddy and his love interest, Lisa, is the one who defeats the monster. He therefore spends most of the film vulnerable, powerless, in a position of victimhood. But unlike normal final girls, there's no resolution to this where he becomes convincingly masculine again. Mm. You're just left with this. Yeah, no, it was notable to me that he didn't have that kind of mid-movie turnaround Mm. where he sort of 
gained a bit of control over the situation and a bit of perspective and was then able to like you know start planning and figuring Mm. out how to deal with freddie in the same way that nancy had in the previous movie Um, yeah i mean i feel like in a lot of ways it's almost like lisa just is the final girl like mm. she is the one who uh so they find nancy's diary Mm. in her old room mm-hmm. at the Elm Street house because exposition is hard. Yep. And Lisa, you know, does all this research and figures out who Fred Krueger is and all of this stuff, mm. which is very much typical final girl stuff to be doing. Mm. Yeah, it's just that she's not doing it for herself. Mm. She's doing it for Jesse. Mm. Who, yeah, instead of getting less vulnerable, gets, yeah, as you said, more vulnerable as the movie goes on. More, um, more open to Freddy's possession. I can totally understand how an audience who are kind of used to the tropes of the genre Mm. might find that less satisfying. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really interesting. I guess it is the thing where, as a movie, it probably works better the more other slasher movies that you've seen in the way that it is, you know, deliberately subverting or Mm. how deliberately, I don't know. I'm sure you'll get into a little bit of the intentions Yeah, we'll get into it in a a little bit, yeah. Um, But this is something, like... I have seen movie critics talk about a lot, which is the idea that sometimes movie critics will enjoy movies. And in this case, this this wasn't what happened from <laughs> what you said. But in some cases, critics will enjoy a movie more than audiences, in part because the movie is kind of reacting to a body of work that the general audience just doesn't see because the general audience, particularly in the age before like uh, home theater systems being mm. particularly common, before the age of Netflix, making things really easy to access you might only see two or three movies in a year. And so your understanding of the tropes of the genre is nowhere near as strong. Mm. Yeah. So I, I don't know a lot about this, but I believe actually that the sort of like rise of the VHS was very instrumental in slasher film mm. popularity because mm. it meant that a lot of people could access them who wouldn't necessarily be able to because of like youth and things like mm. that. And I think it's somewhat precisely because this film sort of steps out of the tropes that the the, the genre is meant to conform to Mm. that people just rejected it. Yeah. You know, like slashes are, for all they are, like very sort of violent, upsetting movies, just so comfy as a genre. Like they're (laughs) so comfy. And as soon as you have something that sort of upsets that, I think people can just like viscerally reject it. Mm. The most common reason that I have seen that people use for why they don't like this movie is literally just, it was too gay. You know, it's very, like, don't go to a YouTube comment section about this movie ever in your life. Um, But I I thought it was sort of valuable to talk about even before we get into the stuff that is just like overtly quite gay, how Mm. there were already these like underpinnings that made it somewhat an unstable film for people expecting like a normative slasher film. Mm-hmm. Now let's get into the ways in which it is extremely gay. Like really just extremely gay. <laughs> yeah, much gayer than I was expecting. Yeah, and you were warned. Yeah, yes. yeah. Eli, Eli warned me and like I knew that we were going to do an episode on this film. Which uh, does insinuate that it might be gay. <laughs> yeah, and mm. yet I still came out of it being like, that was very gay. Yeah, um, so I will give you an example of some homoerotic things that occur in this film. Early on in the film, Jesse has an altercation with a guy called Grady at school and they wrestle and Jesse's pants just fully get pulled off. The coach then tells them to 
assume the position and while they do push-ups Grady tells Jesse how the coach likes to go to queer S&M bars. In his house one night Jesse is confronted by Freddy Krueger who caresses his face and tells him that he needs his body. In Jesse's room which has a no girls allowed sign on the door he finds a diary from Nancy which links Freddy to her own sexual awakening. Jesse goes to the S&M bar in the middle of the night where he meets his coach who takes him to the gym at school and makes him run laps. After that, Freddy possesses Jesse's body and ties the coach up, whips his buttocks in a close-up with a towel, and then kills him. Jesse and his love interest Lisa hook up at her pool party, but Jesse is unable to go through with it due to his being possessed and leaves to go see Grady instead. They then have the exchange, something is trying to get inside my body, to which Grady replies, yeah, and she's female, and she's waiting for you in the cabana, and you want to sleep with me. Those were the main examples that I was going to give. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pretty thorough summary of ways in which the movie is both explicitly and heavily implicitly gay. Yeah. So the subtext, if it can be called that, was noted at the time of release, um, I believe in the gay press, and increasingly this has become the dominant thing that this film is known for. It's also, as I mentioned explicitly, the reason why many of its detractors have disliked it over the years. Discussions about queerness and this film have often centered on Mark Patton, the now openly gay actor who played Jesse. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of background into Mark Patton's life and career. Yeah, cool. So Mark Patton grew up in a small town in a religious family and knew from a young age that he was gay. And when he was 17, he bought a one-way ticket to New York City. So very much like an archetypal experience. Yeah, well. He got an agent and was soon starring in commercials. And a few years later, he opened on Broadway in Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Interestingly enough, playing a pre-transition trans woman in a cast that also featured Cher. So did Mark Patton throw the first brick at Stonewall? (laughs) (laughs) If he'd just been born a little later, he would have had a great role for him. (laughs) But anyway, Come Back to the Five and Dime uh, was then made into a movie with the original Broadway cast, so he was in the film. Mm. Um, So he's doing pretty well for himself. He moved to LA and he met Timothy Patrick Murphy, who was a successful TV actor and they fell in love and quickly moved in together on top of Mulholland Drive. And uh, he has a few more roles and he gets cast in Freddy's Revenge. Um, A lot of stars were getting their big breaks in low budget slashes. Uh, So as an example, in the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, Johnny Depp had his first role, Mm, which is, things are, are looking pretty good for Mark. However, when the movie came out, Mark's agent saw it and basically went into damage control, working to conceal his sexuality. There was concern about him being typecast uh, because he had played a pre-transition trans woman in uh, the earlier film, mm-hmm. um, which in sort of various interviews I saw people just referred to as a, a gay character. You know, it's not like significantly different at the time to people, I guess. Yeah, mm. yeah. And now this film has come out as well. And his agents restricted what clothes he could wear to auditions to like a very limited range of his wardrobe and things like that. Also, you know, this is the mid 1980s. This is during the AIDS epidemic. Mm. Regarding the AIDS epidemic, Mark said, we were free, we were living the liberation. And then the check came, uh, which I think sort of encapsulates the turn in, in the tone in the contemporary gay scene. A lot of people went back into the closet. There was a huge spike in homophobia, um, which is a hell of a background to to this film to come out to. Um, Mark's partner, Tim, was diagnosed HIV positive and would eventually pass away from AIDS in 1988. 
understandably with the stress of his personal life and sort of the the general tone of life as a gay man in America at the time contrasted with being asked to dress a certain way and closet himself on the other hand like the stress of that was just too much for him and he decided to leave show business so in many ways for Mark you know this was meant to be the film that launched his career and it ended it instead he moved to uh, Puerto Vallarta in Mexico and he disappeared from public life and that was sort of where the story ended for him as far as the Elm Street series went. He was just sort of not heard of again for many years. He seems to have been quite happy there. He settled down. Uh, he married a man mm-hmm. that he met in Mexico mm-hmm. um, and they have a store together. They sell art, including some of Mark's art. Mm. So he seemed to be living quite a nice life and that was sort of that was sort of it until he was tracked down by a private detective uh, oh my god <laughs> yes um and asked to take part in a documentary about the elm street series um, which was called never sleep again the elm street legacy it was released in 2010 and after that he produced and starred in another documentary called scream queen my nightmare on elm street that is scream comma queen exclamation mark <laughs> and in both of these documentaries he talks about his experiences as a gay man making this film mark recalls that on set the queer subtext in this film became incredibly obvious to him he recalled in particular the scene in which freddie first confronts jesse in the Elm Street house and announces his intent to possess his body. Uh, It's a very physical scene. They're like very close to each other. Uh, Robert Englund, Freddy's actor, like caresses Mark's face Mm -hmm. a lot and sort of grabs him a lot. Mark recalls that Robert asked if he could actually take that scene further than the version that ended up being in the movie. And specifically that he asked if he could put one of the blades in Mark's mouth. And Mark was like, sure, yeah, let's let's do it. And then his makeup artist burst onto the set and was like, stop, stop, stop. I need to fix his makeup, pulled him aside and said, you cannot let him do that. It's going to look like you're blowing him. Well, I mean, yeah, that was the point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when interviewed for the Scream Queen documentary, Robert Englund does mention that as one of the things he was playing with in that scene. So he's quite upfront about that. There are quite mixed statements from the rest of the cast and crew about if they were aware of the subtext or not. Robert Englund is quite upfront about how there was clear homoerotic subtext and he was aware of it. So he said, for example, people have selective memory a little bit about this. It was on the page of the script that there was going to be this S&M sequence in the shower room. And I knew we were treading in there. I knew we were tiptoeing around this. I knew we were crossing a line a little bit. And I knew Freddie was part of that. Freddie was pushing those buttons. Robert Russler, who is uh, Grady's actor, also very blatantly says, right away, I knew there was homosexual undertones of the script when I read it. I knew at the audition, I knew. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting then that this movie was always then going to end up with a lot of gay subtext kind of no matter what anyone else thought really in that case because you've got the three or three of the four men who are involved in these homoerotic scenes who are just like aware of it and clearly mm-hmm. like embracing it to a greater or lesser extent yeah so the fourth man i guess is the coach yeah who is like perhaps more explicitly involved than anyone and his actor actually said he didn't notice it; he had no idea 
That makes zero sense. Mm. Kim Myers, who is Lisa's actor, also said, I didn't get it. I didn't catch it in the script. Jack Shoulder, the director, also professed ignorance, saying, when you actually go back and look at it, it's shot through with this stuff. You know, why I didn't get it, I don't know. But it's maintained that he had no idea at the time that any of this was in the film. I can almost get that from the director's point of view. Like, you know, as a director, you might be filming scenes out of sequence Mm. and you're kind of focused on just getting the shots done Mm -hmm. and, you know, you're kind of working from the script and you know just getting the actors to do things yeah okay i can kind of understand that i just don't get how the guy playing the coach who is that character is gay yeah and is in a gay m club and then gets whipped by freddie yes i i just don't understand how you the dots i'm connecting them why can't you? Yeah, and I mean, I kind of went back and forth on what I thought about Jack Shoulder being all surprised by this because, like, he knew about all the scenes individually, and I don't feel like you knew them in sequence. Mm. You know, like, it doesn't really matter where in the sequence the gay bar scene falls. You know? <laughs> it's still gay. He did actually say uh, when it was pointed out to him by Mark Patton in the Scream Queen documentary, mm. uh, you know, he's like, we filmed a scene in a gay bar, and he's like, oh, it's more of a transvestite bar, as if that has any real impact on any of this like that difference yeah 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 also like i don't know that wasn't the vibe i got from it in the movie (laughs) yeah i I don't know i think uh like it's not there are like women in the bar Mm. which i guess kind of slightly undermines the like gayest possible potential it could ever reach but like it's we hear about this bar by Grady saying he likes to go to queer S&M joints. Like, it's it's a queer bar. Yeah. I don't really care about what flavor the movie's implying it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't really care which letters of the acronym are involved yeah. in the bar. It's still gay. Yes. But the person whose opinion on this Mark is most interested in, and perhaps the person whose opinion is of most consequence, is the writer David Chaskin. Mm. And for a long time, Chaskin denied or coyly hinted at the movie being deliberately gay by turns. So for a long time, Chaskin was very evasive about his intent in writing the film. He recalls that when people began to question the subtext, Bob Shea of New Line Cinema asked him about it, you know, saying, is there anything to this that everyone's saying? And he goes, oh, absolutely not. What are you talking about? He's also said things in interviews such as, is Freddy a manifestation of this taboo thing that's somewhere in the back of his head? You can play with it all you want. Over the years, Chaskin has gradually become more transparent about the fact that he wrote it deliberately to be gay, saying, obviously I didn't want it to be obvious, that subtext, which is why I never really admitted to it, that and because it was so much more fun not to. He continued to deflect responsibility for the final product, however, saying, for example, there was certainly some intentional subtext, but it was intended to play homophobic rather than homoerotic. There were certain choices that were made, like casting, that pushed the subtext to a higher level and stripped away whatever subtlety there may have been. And quotes like that in particular are why it has been so important for Mark Patton to get some closure from David Chaskin, Mm. because he feels that ultimately the blame, quote-unquote, for this movie being gay has been put onto him rather than on anyone else involved in the film, such as David Chaskin or Jack Shoulder. Uh, Essentially, the line has sort of been... Well, the film was, was was not gay, and then Mark Patton came along and was just so gay 
that it made the movie gay. And that's just patently absurd. Yes. That's just patently absurd. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and as you can sort of see by Chaskin's quotes, although he he doesn't really want to own what he's done, he was absolutely deliberately playing with the subtext that he put in this movie on purpose. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, the idea that it was meant to play a bit more homophobic than homoerotic is... Yeah, I guess I can kind of see that. I'm interested in what you think that means, because I was just sort of like, what? I guess if the acting between Freddy and Jesse uh, in their first confrontation is a bit more kind of traditionally masculine in its violence and less sensual Mm -hmm. and then also some of the acting between jesse and grady Mm -hmm. that feels like one of the scenes where perhaps jack shoulder didn't necessarily get what was happening (laughs) where you know that's just kind of boys being rivals and kind of going from like not really liking each other but then there's a common figure of animosity and then they become friends Mm -hmm. that's a scene that happens in many movies without necessarily being homoerotic Mm -hmm. and so i can kind of see how some elements of it went from being things that only for example showed up in a particularly kind of threatening and alien context like you know jesse sleepwalking out to the gay club but then because they kind of came to occupy more of the scenes and in more contexts within the movie then it becomes a bit more kind of like an erotic through line rather than something that's kind of hyping up the alienness of Mm. queer identities Mm-hmm. The culmination of Scream Queen is a conversation between Mark and Chaskin in which Mark asks him point blank why he put the subtext in and Chaskin is somewhat gratifyingly just sort of upfront for once in his life. <laughs> and speaking about homophobia in the 1980s, he said, coming out of the 80s was a scary thing, I'm sure. It just seems like a very visceral animal thing that's not controllable and that would infiltrate somebody's mind, and it's just another thing to worry about. The AIDS thing made it even worse. I mean, what if I do this, and what if I get AIDS, and it just seemed like it would add to the horror in a sense. He also kind of at least apologizes to Mark, saying, I'm not going to say I haven't made mistakes. I'm not going to say I haven't said things that I've regretted, but I hope you can forgive me for any perceived or it wasn't intentional. Clearly, I don't want to promote homophobia, but I do want to point it out. And this is certainly more honest than Chaskin has been so far. I personally feel like his apology is a bit of a cop-out, and I don't think he truly acknowledges the hurt he has caused. Mark, however, did feel satisfied, and I respect that, and I'm pleased for him. Mm. Uh, he talked about how he had essentially made him the like focal point of all of his feelings about what he was experiencing at the time due to the climate around the AIDS epidemic and homophobia and sort of just acknowledges to himself that that isn't ultimately all Chaskin's fault Hmm. and is able to not pin all that on him anymore and kind of come to terms with it. So I'm very happy that he's able to get closure on that and feel satisfied by that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's really good. Um, Yeah. yeah, Even if, and I agree with you, I don't think Chaskin's Mm. apology is much of an apology. No, like I I know that it doesn't have, I'm sorry in it anywhere. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, It's kind of, I'm sorry, but, but without the, I'm sorry, mm. just the, but. Just the butt. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, like much of the movie. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, for Mark Patton, and like I can't speak from obviously, but just being able to kind of vocalize everything and have Chaskin, who is like largely responsible for a lot of this, mm. like just sit there and listen to it was probably very helpful. So that's good. Good job, that private investigator. I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've established beyond a shadow of a doubt that this film is gay and this film is gay deliberately. And we've heard a bit from the writer about what he was thinking to a degree in putting that in the movie. I wanted to have a bit of a brief chat about how we feel the theme of queerness in this movie actually comes across. Like, what is it actually saying? Like, what is Chaskin doing with this movie? The Nightmare on Elm Street films regularly depict adolescent fear of lack of control and feature adults whose lack of understanding means that they cannot be trusted or relied on. They are therefore pretty ripe for the exploration of like any number of teenage experiences and anxieties, and I think that a really good Elm Street movie about queerness could be made. Freddy's Revenge isn't it. <laughs> Although Chaskin deliberately included queer overtones because he sensed their potential, it's clear from the quotes above that he doesn't have a clear vision of what he's trying to say or do with any of that, really. And I think that's only going to be hurt by the fact that this is also being run by a director who either doesn't know or pretends he doesn't know that this theme is even there and a general silence on set at least amongst some of the actors, um, you know, it's, it's unsurprising that, in my opinion, this film is pretty directionless. It seems pretty clear from the quotes that you gave from Chaskin that he sort of took from media coverage and from kind of a vague understanding of what was happening to the gay community at the time, this idea that it was fertile ground for the horror genre to explore, but not that he was necessarily coming at it with an idea of, I'm going to tell a story, like the Mm. story of a gay person, or I'm going to, you know, explore what this means for this character. It just kind of feels a bit like set dressing in Mm. terms of at least how he was bringing it in. Yeah. A lot of what people find interesting about horror films is the way they reflect contemporary fears and anxieties Mm. within culture Mm. and a lot of the time that isn't deliberate stuff that just turns up because that is what was going on at the moment Um, and so in this way it's it's pretty typical of the genre and like it's still interesting because of that but it doesn't make for a more satisfying film obviously and perhaps unsurprisingly given the times and the circumstances in which it was made the most straightforward reading of the film's depiction of queerness, in my opinion, is like a pretty homophobic one. It's not difficult to form a reading in which Freddy is essentially Jesse's burgeoning homosexuality, conceptualized as this force inside him that he does not want or understand and is trying to desperately repress. You know, he has a female love interest, but he's unable to fully reciprocate her affection because of this possession he goes and he instead seeks out his male friend grady who dies as a result of that um and at the end of the movie freddy is defeated by lisa's kiss chaskin has essentially endorsed this reading himself saying if you really wanted to have fun one might argue that the entire movie is a metaphor jesse is in the end finally able to control the monster inside him his latent homosexuality with the love of a good woman Maybe they should show this film at one of those evangelical deprogramming sessions where they try to fix gay people into regular Americans. Now, to be clear, from context, that was like a joke. But still. Okay, but 
Chaskin is absolutely not the person to make that no, joke. No, 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 no. I don't know if anyone is the person to make that joke, but certainly not him. And, like, that's terrible, obviously. But I wanted to also point out that he starts out with, if you really wanted to have fun, at no point ever has Chaskin furthered a reading of this film, which he wrote that he's willing to stand by for, like, a single second. <laughs> which is just, like, I, I just have so little respect for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think... You know, as obviously insensitive as that quote from Chaskin is, like, I do kind of agree with you in terms of the interpretation of the film as being quite homophobic. Definitely comes across, Mm. uh, at least to me. And, you know, I think gets into, like, some of the stuff we were talking about earlier about the the gender roles and the way in which Lisa is kind of framed as the true final Mm. girl of Mm -hmm. the movie in terms of her being the problem solver and her being the one who's, like, kind of proactive. And this idea that Jesse, because of these kind of latent homosexual feelings, is kind of therefore unable to kind of quote-unquote man up Mm. and defeat Freddy, and then, you know, is kind of only saved by compulsory heterosexuality (laughs) at the end of the movie. Like, that's the hero of the movie, which is, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty grim. Yeah. And quite unfortunate, because I do feel like we could have had, for example, a better version of this movie where perhaps his relationship with Grady becomes something that is important to the resolution. Mm, Yeah. Um, There's a lot of scenes in this movie that are just, like, goofy. mm. And I feel like, off the top of my head, the sort of one moment of, like, real pathos is Grady's death. mm. Like, it's very sad. Like, I don't care about the coach at all. (laughs) But, like, it's... Yeah, yeah. It's rough. Yeah, and, like, you know, that gives them a whole arc from the moment when they're first sort of forced together by the coach Mm. and aren't getting along at all Mm. through to Jesse going to him at his time of greatest need when he's completely unable to control or understand what Mm. is happening to him. Yeah. And I feel like if you went with that, that would be a way to frame Jesse's vulnerability as a choice and a positive thing. Yeah. You know, that's a pretty like common moment in Elm Street movies of someone being like, I'm going to fall asleep, watch me. Mm. And it's such a fertile ground for like closeness and the character still being vulnerable, but that being a shift to them making a choice. Yeah. Should we write a like fanfic script of this? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe yeah. we can like have. Uh... We could do a reading of it and everything. Oh my God. <laughs> That does sound pretty good. That does sound pretty good. Yeah. I'm not Mark Patton's doing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's impossible. Uh, at Mark Patton, come on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll just give him like a cameo, like a, like a good cameo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do feel like in the end, the film isn't that far away from being pretty good in its queer representation. In that you've obviously got this figure of the coach who is like somewhat abusive. But I feel like you... If you have that and you have this example of kind of negative homosexuality, but mm. then you like counteract that by Jesse and Grady and their kind of affection for each other mm. ultimately being what saves the day, I think that would be a pretty cohesive movie and would not but, be unequivocally mm. positive, but would be a fairly good depiction of. Yeah, I mean, like, especially in 1985, yeah. sort of having this as like a hypothetical of what the movie could have been. Mm. And like, I've, you know, put forward this like quite negative reading, and I think that that is pretty inherent in the text but that's not like the only reading of this film that exists like as we've said it's a pretty 
directionless, you know, underwritten film. So there's certainly room for other interpretations. In the documentary, um, I believe it was the drag queen Peaches Christ who said that something she liked about it was that in a lot of horror movies that have a queer-coded character, that is the villain. And Mm. it's not Freddy who is queer-coded necessarily, it's Jesse, the protagonist. Um, And, you know, and then that queerness turns out to be like a monster living inside him, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, you know, especially given that this film exists within a kind of canon of an entire series... And it's not like we see in other films, as far as I'm aware, Freddy having kind of homosexual overtones. No. And so the fact that it's kind of unique to this film makes it, you know, it's this isn't about Freddy being a gay-coded villain. Mm. It's about the feelings and yeah. anxieties that Jesse is experiencing. Yeah, I feel like it would be really easy to pivot this movie to Freddy not being homosexuality but being internalized homophobia and that could have really easily been done by having jesse just still be gay at the end yeah uh that's the last thing that i wanted to say was i mean i think you can mount the argument that jesse is still gay at the end of the movie okay because of how the movie precisely ends not with the victory but after that when it turns out that freddie is still around Mm. and you know you have that final shot of him like punching his hand through uh, the chest of Lisa's friend, whose name I've forgotten. I've also forgotten it. <laughs> yeah. Um, a fairly forgettable character. <laughs> um, the idea that compulsory heterosexuality and, you know, forcing away these feelings and trying to force those anxieties away doesn't work. Mm. And that ultimately, Jesse, if he was going to have a true victory over Freddy, would have needed to actually confront that properly. Mm. I think that what you could do there is have jesse have accepted himself as gay and then it turns out that lisa's friend is a lesbian but now he can help her defeat freddie for herself and then she is a lesbian and maybe she and lisa get together i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah this is a good workshop (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, i like it (laughs) um yeah interestingly enough the sort of like sequel hook that happens at the end of these movies has a history of undermining the theme so i was just gonna like write that off entirely but Mm. it was a it was a thing that wes craven really hated at the first one where it also ends in a sequel hook and the way the monster is defeated in that one is that Nancy like realizes that she has the power and just turns her back on him and says, you know, I take back everything I gave you and he goes away. Mm. And Wes Craven was like, yeah, that's really undermined when she gets into a car and it turns into Freddy, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, it, it, it's quite bizarre because in the third movie, it's not like that scene relevant to that has any relevance yeah. to that sequel. Yeah. Um, and same with the first to the second movie. Yeah. yeah. So these sequel hooks are, yeah, they're quite weird. I, I guess probably, yeah, I, I'm kind of using it as a way to kind of insert a, a, a gay canon into the plot of the movie when realistically it was just a trope of how those movies worked at that time most notably at least in my experience mm. of horror movies which is admittedly quite limited uh in friday the 13th when i got <laughs> goddamn jump scared yeah by yourself <laughs> by myself <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be clear i am not jason Voorhees. <laughs> so i wanted to end by talking a little bit about the legacy of this film such as it is we've already mentioned that for mark Patton, producing the documentary scream queen seems to have been an experience that has brought him some closure about his experiences on the set of freddy's revenge 
he's certainly able to publicly engage with this film now and its fans and the horror community in general and has been a guest at, at various horror conventions quite commonly since then. There's some really lovely shots in the documentary. One of the scenes that he felt most negatively about and was most anxious about filming was the like dance scene in his bedroom and now this is something that he like does at events sometimes Aww. with people. Like there's a really cute scene <laughs> with a drag queen being like, Mark, will you dance with me? And he was like, Oh no. And then they do the dance together. And I was Aww. just like, yeah, that's really it's, cute. Yeah. It's, it's cute. Yeah. And he seems to like be able to kind of like own that and enjoy it now. And like, oh, it's, yeah. it's great because like that scene is a, is a great campy scene and it should be owned as such. Yeah, definitely. He also has used his film from this movie to do activism work around homophobia and HIV. So speaking about this, he said, so I decided that I was going to take my little bit of fame and squeeze as much out of it as I possibly could. I knew that this glove was really powerful. I would let all of these people get to know me as a healthy person and then I would tell them that I was HIV positive so that they could know that they had met a person who was gay and who had HIV and they couldn't say they didn't know anybody. He, he seems like a great man. The film has also unsurprisingly become a bit of a cult film with queer viewers. The documentary has various people talking about how in the 1980s there weren't really a lot of films being made for gay men. And so for some young gay men at the time, this was effectively their first queer movie. Mm. And it was one of the only chances they had to like see inside a gay bar and to see a man shot as desirable in a way that generally only women were you know i'm sure like for a lot of queer people this movie just isn't salvageable but i do enjoy that for others positive experiences and positive ratings can be made out of something that was initially careless at best and malicious at worst you know like take that david chaskin the queers have a vision for your movie that you are incapable of we will take it from here thank well you. and i mean and i mean truly given mark's presence on mm. set and also whilst from my understanding given that you haven't stated it before robert england does not appear to be queer not that i'm aware of not no. that you're but mm. like but like the fact that he was embracing that, yeah um and that grady's actor was also embracing mm. that it always truly has been mm. and it's great to hear that then yeah. audiences have been able to then claim that yeah well. yeah like certainly i understand that probably a lot of people can never enjoy this movie but i do kind of feel like at this point the movie belongs to Mark Patton, and the movie belongs to us, and mm. David Cheskin is just irrelevant. Yeah. 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 Death of the author and all that. Yeah. A thing I could have mentioned earlier is, as well, a lot of the, the cast and crew, including Cheskin, who did not have any awareness, apparently, at the time, um, and who certainly weren't willing to own it until recently, now that it's on all of these, like, listicles as being one of the most gay horror movies of all time, have kind of, like, owned it and say they think that's really cool. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. You don't get to come in now and enjoy this and take credit for it. Yeah, absolutely. Screw you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you abandoned this movie. Yeah. And you abandoned... Mark Patton. Yeah. And so, yeah, you absolutely... As, as we were saying, this movie has been claimed by the queer community. Yeah. We will, permit you, leader. <laughs> we will permit you to view this movie again when we are ready. <laughs> yeah. With that, we've been Queer as Fiction. My name is Eli. And I'm Jason. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever good podcasts are found. Speaking of Spotify, thank you to everyone on Twitter. Uh, I, this possibly happened on all platforms, but I saw it most notably on Twitter, uh, who tagged us to tell us that we were in their Spotify wrapped for 2020. That was very sweet of you. Mm. Um, 
And a special shout out to the person who successfully matched our top artists with our hosts, specifically Alice, Eli, and myself. Uh, so shout outs to at Marie Templetoe 13, who I believe is named Marie Templeton, uh, based <laughs> on their Twitter name, who wrote, hmm, uh, in response to my tweet, which uh, listed the artists as Hosier, the Mountain Goats, and Alex the Astronaut. Uh, so if you want to pause now and make your guesses. <laughs> but Marie wrote, hmm, I'd say Eli was Hosier's just because I feel like he mentioned Hosier in the blooper episode. That is such good, like, memory slash detective work. Yeah. I did think, oh, that's a clue. And then I was like, no one's going to remember that. But, like, Marie's on it. Yeah. Yeah. And wrote, Jason has the Mountain Goats vibes, which I don't know what that means, but I feel honored. Okay. Um, and said, and I've never listened to Alex the Astronaut, but by process of elimination, that has to be Alice, which was good, solid detective work. Mm. I also want to give a shout out to user at DorianLC underscore, specifically whilst they did not get all three correct, wrote, I think Eli has Hosier vibes. All the classicist gays go for Hosier. So Eli and Hosier, which is 100% correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have been dragged <laughs> um, anyway i will let eli get on with the outro <laughs> and speaking of apple Podcasts, to get us back to the outro um if you do listen to us on apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review and a rating out of five stars um it really helps us to reach a wider audience and we have recently fallen very slightly in our rating and it plagues me daily <laughs> if you do leave us a review we will maybe get around to reading it out one day on this podcast and to prove that that is a true statement i will read you one right now this review comes from la professora literatura who is from america and who gave us a rating out of five stars with the heading informative and interesting they say a past student recommended this to me and i'm ever so grateful they did i appreciate the idea that we must write queer people into a history that often erases them very pertinent to this episode i feel i guess all our episodes truly um <laughs> in particular i appreciate the transparency around how methodology terminology and sources shape what stories are possible Aww. Yeah, so thank you very much for that review. I'm so excited um, people are out there recommending us to their teachers or previous teachers. That is very exciting. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that feels like a compliment. Yeah. yeah. I get excited whenever anyone's like, oh, I've used this in my classroom or whatever. Yeah, that's so my or my teachers or wild whatever. to me. So yeah, thank you very much for leaving us a review. We really appreciate that. And if you do not wish to leave us a review or do not have Apple Podcasts or what have you, you know, clearly mentioning this podcast to someone in your life might get us a review or a listener. So please feel free to do that instead. If you would like to find us on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. You can also send us real live mail if you would like to do that. Our PO box address is listed on our website uh, and you can also go there for any more information about Queer as Fact, including all the sources for this episode. Uh, that is www.queerasfact.com. If you would like to support us financially, you can also find us on Redbubble and Patreon as Queer as Fact. We respectfully acknowledge the Yalakut Willem clan of the Bunwurrung. We pay our respect to their elders, both past and present, and we acknowledge and uphold that continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. We'll be back on the 1st of January when, uh, to coincide with the upcoming Netflix movie about her life, Alice will be telling us about American blues singer Ma Rainey.
Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then. 